Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the 29th floor here in central Hong Kong. Glad we can be together this week to study the material from Come Follow Me. Uh, This week we'll be discussing Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, Luke 23, and John 19. And the title is, is It is Finished, and we'll be covering the remainder of the trial of the Savior and his crucifixion. If you recall last week, we finished the lesson uh, with Christ having been condemned of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin uh, at, at, at an illegal trial, which took place at night, uh, following which uh, Peter, who had been tagging closely behind, uh, had denied the Savior three times. And we pick up from there. Uh as was mentioned, it was uh, the trial that in which Christ had been originally condemned was illegal because it had been uh, conducted at night. And there's actually, uh, I believe, a total of 12 reasons that Elder Talmadge outlines in his uh, incomparable book, Jesus the Christ, uh, reasons for which the trial of the Savior was uh, illegal. Uh, another of them was that uh, normally a trial... Uh, that results in capital punishment, that results in an execution uh, being pronounced, uh, you must have two trials, and there must be sufficient gap between the two in which those priests that are involved in the process have time to fast and to pray about their decision. Well, they didn't uh, afford sufficient time for the Savior uh, to receive the benefits of that process. Uh, Instead, what they did was after they had the illegal trial the first night, which would have been a Thursday night, the next morning, being a Friday morning, bright and early, they met again uh, quickly, and again, the result was was the same. Uh, Condemnation of death uh, for the charge of blasphemy. Now, the Jewish leaders here were acting very quickly because they themselves did not want to be the ones that were executing, that were carrying out the punishment uh, of execution. They wanted the Romans to take care of that. In order for that to happen, they had to get the consent of Pontius Pilate. Pilate normally did not reside in Jerusalem, uh, but he was there at this time in order to oversee uh, the Passover. Everyone was gathered together, and he wanted to make sure uh, that the city remained calm uh, during the Passover. So Pilate was there, and they wanted to take advantage of Pilate's presence in order to uh, have him uh, carry out their uh, horrible decision to execute and to uh, inflict capital punishment upon the Savior of the world. And so we can see that they are that they are acting very quickly. Um, interesting to note that uh, they had they. Uh, been the ones to carry out the execution, uh, they would have had to get Pilate's agreement, but they, they wanted the Romans to be the one to carry it out, as we said. Therefore, it would have been death by execution. 
had Pilate simply assented to them carrying out their own law, uh, for which blasphemy, of course, was the charge. Blasphemy was not illegal under Roman law. Uh, that was a Jewish law. And had they carried out uh, the, the, the their own law in condemning the Savior uh, to execution, uh, he would have been stoned to death, uh, which was the, the means in which the, the Jews of the time carried out uh, capital punishment. But again, they, they were fearful that uh, by them by themselves carrying out uh, the execution of the Savior, that the people would have been upset, uh, that there would have been rebellion and would have been huge problems because Christ was, of course, very popular. Um, and he become very uh, noteworthy uh, given the, the many miracles that he had performed and the gathering that he had amassed. And so... They did. They wanted the Romans to carry this out, and therefore the result was death by crucifixion, not death by stoning. So after they have their own uh, second trial in the morning, um, again they did not leave sufficient time under their own law, uh, but they but they hastily carried out the second trial early in the morning on the Friday. They take Christ to Pilate, uh, and and they can't charge Christ with blasphemy in front of Pilate, because blasphemy, again, is not a sin under, is not a crime under Roman law. Uh, Romans were, were pagans. They didn't, they didn't have any notion of blasphemy. That was not something for which one uh, could be punished, let alone executed. And so uh, their accusation of the Savior in front of Pontius Pilate is not one of blasphemy, but rather one of sedition and treason, uh, claiming that he said, that uh, they should tribute should not get paid to Caesar, and rather he was the king of the Jews rather than Caesar. So, so this is their, the, the charge that they uh, accuse him of in front of Pilate. Uh, Pilate interviews him, uh, finds no fault. Uh, the Savior does not say a lot to Pilate, um, but the, the little that he does say, based on the little that he does say, Pilate is not able to find him guilty of anything, let alone a crime uh, for which he would be willing to, to execute him. Uh, and when Pilate hears that he is from Galilee, uh, he then decides to, uh, to wash his hands of the matter, if you will, and, and he sends him to Herod, uh, who is in charge of Galilee, who also happens to be in Jerusalem at the time, given the, pa the Passover festivities. And so he sends Christ to Herod, um, and Herod uh, is anxious to see Christ, but Christ refuses to say anything uh, to Herod. Herod, of course, being uh, the ruler that carried out the execution of his cousin, uh, John the Baptist, um, at the behest of, 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 a, <clears throat> of a request, uh, a wicked request from a woman. Um, and, and so Christ has nothing to say uh, to Herod. Uh, and so when Christ appears before Herod and doesn't say anything, Herod is unable to do anything. And so he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate uh, receives Christ, again speaks with him, and goes to the Jews and says, Look, I, I don't see anything that he's done that's wrong. I can't, there's nothing uh, based upon which I can carry out this execution. So he makes a suggestion to them. He says, How about um, it's Passover time? Rather than we execute Christ, uh, as is tradition, every year during the time of Passover, 
we take a Jewish criminal and we release him, uh, we let him go free, uh, as again, as a goodwill gesture to the Jewish people. Of course, it's rich with symbolism given the Passover, given the time in which uh, the Jews uh, were, were freed uh, were freed from Pharaoh and were allowed to go free. So he says, why don't we take this tradition and apply it to Christ? We let Christ go free. That way you guys can condemn him of being guilty, whatever you think he's guilty of. And this man who I don't find anything wrong with, uh, we, we can let him go free. Everyone will be happy. Uh, but the Jewish leaders reject this offer. Uh, they don't want anything to do with it. They want Christ gone because he is a grave threat to their authority and to their power uh, and as the people are listening to him. So they do not want to accept this bargain. Uh, and instead they, they insist on one uh, man named Barabbas uh, who had been guilty of insurrection and of murder. And he is the one that they want to go free uh, rather than Christ. And so uh, Barabbas, interestingly, is a name meaning son of the father. And again, he was in fact guilty. So we have one man who is guilty uh, being released, while Christ, who is completely and totally innocent, uh, is condemned to death. Um, given his name, uh, one could, it, it's not hard to miss the parallels here. Christ the only begotten son of the father who was found to be without fault. He receives the punishment that should have been carried out against a guilty son of the father so that the guilty son might live. Uh, and that of course is exactly what Christ does for each of us. We as sons and daughters of God, we like Barabbas are all guilty of sin. We are all worthy of, of a condemnation, of a punishment that should be inflicted upon us. But because Christ takes that punishment for us, we, like Barabbas, are set free. And we are able to go on with our lives and progression remains possible. Because Christ takes that burden, Christ takes that sin and our guilt upon him and receives that punishment on our behalf. So Barabbas is released. Um, Pilate, <clears throat> again, has his concerns. And so rather than uh, executing him right away, he thinks perhaps if he simply scourges the Savior, uh, then the Jews will be moved by sympathy for this innocent man and they will let him go. So, so Pilate uh, has his guards carry out the, the horrible punishment of scourging in which a, a whip, uh, which, in which uh, pieces of glass and bones and rocks are braided into and is uh, used to beat the back of the victim. The scourging, this, this horrible punishment is inflicted upon the Savior. Again, the charitable interpretation of, of, uh, of, Pilate's, of Pilate's decision here is that hoping by seeing the punishment inflicted upon Christ that uh, the Jews will agree to, to let him go. Uh, the, the Roman soldiers also place a crown of thorns upon his head. Uh, certainly 
and mock and by means of mocking one who claimed to be the king of the Jews. The scourging itself was was absolutely a, a horrible punishment. Uh, people, it was not uncommon for people to die because of the scourging, either from from shock of the pain or due to lack of blood. Uh, but Christ, of course, survived the scourging, survived the crown of thorns being placed upon his head. And it was not sufficient to move the Jewish leaders and the people that they had riled up uh, against Christ. Uh, themselves showing uh, their own lack of sympathy. So Pilate again has Christ stand before them. He tells them famously, uh, Behold your king, uh, to which they respond um, with no uh, shortage of irony. As recorded in John chapter 19, verse 15, the chief priests answered, uh, but they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Uh, the whole, again, the horrible irony of the Jewish people who for years have been awaiting the coming of their Messiah, the coming of their king. He finally comes and their response is to crucify him and to claim that they have no king other than other than a Roman emperor who often brutally uh, enforced his way, inflicted his way upon them, uh, and severely limiting often their ability to practice their religion while the one king, while the one man, the one savior that would have granted them freedom they end up crucifying him. Um, again, un, unbelievable, uh, unbelievable irony. Um, Pilate, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 through 25, it reads, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Again, what a horrible cry. <laughs> that our God, our King, who we've been waiting for, He has finally come and we want to kill Him and take upon ourselves His blood. Take His innocence upon our own heads and upon the heads of our children. Again, uh, the irony... Is, is hard to miss. So Pilate here has really little choice uh, but to allow the Jews uh, to use his soldiers to carry out uh, their horrible desires. Uh, Pilate is by no means uh, clean uh, or innocent of, of blood uh, of, of other Jews. He's been many times responsible for, he has at time in the past been responsible for uh, uh, violently and very forcefully uh, putting down prior insurrections uh, and attempts against him. Um, as a result of his cruelty, uh, there had been several complaints uh, put forward to Caesar Augustus, to the emperor, and he was uh, walking a very fine line here. Um, and so at this point, he had very little options but to allow the Jewish people to carry out uh, their horrible desire and use his soldiers 
to execute their king and their Messiah. So on to the crucifixion. Christ was apparently unable to bear the weight of the cross uh, on the march up the hill, on the march to Golgotha, the place of the skull, uh, due no doubt to the horrible scourging, to the uh, certainly the lack of sleep that he received, and then the prison where he was held, and then of course the unbelievable pain and agony that he had suffered the very night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so because of all of that, he, he was exhausted, and he was unable to carry his own heavy wooden cross up to the hill. So they conscripted a man named Simon. He's from a place called Cyrene, which was interestingly a, a Jewish enclave in northern, Cap, in, in northern Africa. Uh, and this uh, Simon is, is conscripted to be the one to carry the cross for Christ. Now, crucifixion itself was um, about about as bad as it gets. Um, from the uh, James E. Talmadge's book, Jesus the Christ, he wrote, Death by crucifixion was at once the most lingering and most painful of all forms of execution. The victim lived in ever-increasing torture, generally for many hours, sometimes for days. The spike so cruelly driven through hands and feet penetrated and crushed sensitive nerves and quivering tendons, yet inflicted no mortal wound. The welcome relief of death came through the exhaustion caused by intense and unremitting pain, through localized inflammation and congestion of organs incident to the strained and, un and unnatural posture of the body. So again, the horror of crucifixion is that there is no fatal blow that is, that is delivered. It is nails in the hands and the feet when nails were used. That itself does not cause death, but rather death is caused after hours, often days of agony as the body essentially rots upon a cross, dying either from thirst or from hunger. Uh, sometimes birds or other animals would, would gnaw away. And the body was kept in a horribly unnatural and uncomfortable position just an absolutely horrible, horrible way of dying. And it's unbelievable to think that Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, the God of the world, would allow himself to die in such a horrible, horrible death. The condescension of God is that Christ came down and descended below all things. He took upon himself a body and went further down than any of us could possibly go. So it's not unreasonable to think that in dying, he took upon himself the most horrible method of death as means of ending his own mortal probation. Certainly a, a very deep and almost incomprehensible thought that the creator of the earth, the God of the earth, would allow himself to die in such a horrible way. Now, the death, the means of death that comes by crucifixion, this slow torture, I can think of two ways in which crucifixion can be uh, 
just the notion of crucifixion can be can be meaningful to us spiritually. One is that this idea that death comes slowly, uh, that no mortal wound is actually inflicted, but rather one twists and torments and is tortured until finally uh, the deed is finished, <clears throat> is in some ways similar to our own state, our own spiritual state. For many of us, we don't commit large sins that will in an instant uh, make us horribly unworthy to be with God. For most of us, it's the little things that if they allow to fest, if we allow them to fester, can become fatal to each and every one of us. And it is a reminder of the necessity of repentance, of every day thinking about what we have done wrong, of every day taking a few moments to ponder how we're doing, to seek out the Spirit, that confirmation that we are doing okay, and though even though we're not always perfect, and even though we make mistakes from time to time, that we haven't suffered any <clears throat> truly fatal flaws. Now, of course, the atonement is powerful enough to cover those fatal flaws. I by no means am uh, trying to convey that. But I think for most of us, we're doing a good job. We're certainly doing the best we can. But just as crucifixion can result in a slow death if it's allowed to fester, if it's allowed to continue, so can our own small sins result in our own spiritual death and eventual eternal separation from God if we are not careful and if we don't repent of them. Now another lesson illustrated by <clears throat> the imagery of crucifixion is found in uh, the third book of Nephi, chapter 27, verses 13 through 16, where we read, and this, of course, is the Savior talking uh, to the Nephites, and he says, Behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. And after that I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father, to stand before me, to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And for this cause have I, have I been lifted up. Therefore, according to the power of the Father, I will draw all men unto me, that they may be judged according to their works. And it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized, then my name shall be filled. And if he endureth to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. So again, just in the same way that the Savior is lifted up upon the cross, we too will be lifted up. Crucifixions were very public displays where all could see, all could witness and and. Many came. Often crosses were placed on the side on, on the side of public highways. The idea being well, several, but one of them was that if the the idea of being publicly humiliated in your own death, well, it's hard to imagine something more more horrible than that, and that would serve as a deterrence for people. Well, each one day, each of us will similarly be lifted up 
and we will stand before God, and our sins will be publicly displayed for everyone to see. And at that point, Christ will be able to say, he'll be able to relate to us, and he'll be able to say, hey, I've been there. I know how that feels. I know what it's like for everyone to see your mistakes because I was publicly shamed in a way even worse than you. And he'll be able to relate to us and he'll be able to uh, and, and he'll be able to uh, stand as our advocate uh, at that day as we are lifted up in the same way that he was lifted up upon the cross. So the nails are driven into his hands and in his feet, and he is lifted upon a tree, lifted upon a cross. The inspired translation of Luke tells us that he explicitly forgave the Roman soldiers that were carrying out this horrible order. Again, showing his, his charity, also showing it that even in this most agonizing, humiliating, painful, horrible experience, he was still full of charity and he was still thinking about those around him whom he loved deeply. Pilate likely is a, is a jab at the Jewish leaders, um, put a sign above his cross stating, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and said, no, 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 change it to say that he said he was King of the Jews. And Pilate refused to change it perhaps as a testimony from Pilate that what he was doing, that, that he had his own convictions as to the Savior's innocence. And certainly uh, also, again, a jab at, at the Jewish leaders, knowing that it would frustrate them. Pilate is certainly an interesting uh, character of history. It's, uh, it's hard to know exactly what was going through his mind. And thank goodness, uh, none of us are, are responsible for for carrying out his ultimate judgment. But it's, it's, it is hard to uh, get past the, uh, the, the clarity from scriptures that Pilate himself uh, had no doubt that the Savior was not guilty, that he was innocent. And it's, it's reasonable to think that he wished that he could have changed the, the result, <clears throat> that he could have stopped the execution. But because of his own previous sins, because of his own earlier mistakes, he was unable to, and he was bound to carry out a horrible order that he disagreed with. So certainly a lesson for each of us to, to be careful in the way in which we conduct our own lives, lest we be like, like Pilate, are bind to do things, are obligated, have no choice but to do things that we wish we could avoid. Now while Christ was on the cross suffering, uh, several, again, this was a very public execution, and there was uh, many people were there taunting him um, in most most cruel ways, and certainly uh, part of the Savior's greatness and his willingness to allow these things to happen to him was the kingly manner, the lovingly manner in which he he took it all, in which he did not in no means retaliated or showed frustration or anger or hate against against those around him. Uh, in Mark 15, verses 29 through 32, it reads, 
And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, O thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. So again, those around him were mocking him, calling into question his own divinity, saying, if you really are the Son of God as you claim to be, come down from the cross. Should remind us of the similar mockings that Satan gave to him earlier after he had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 God for 40 days if thou art the son of God and I think we often receive similar criticisms in our own lives if you really are a disciple of Christ if you really are a son of God if God really exists then how can you explain this then why aren't you able to do that Sometimes it takes great faith to allow mockers to mock. But we need to follow the example of our Savior and not retaliating and allowing them to have their day, knowing that we will have ours. Of course, it's interesting. I find it interesting in verse 32 where the chief priest, uh, and perhaps what is the cruelest mock, says that we may see and believe. Of course they would not have believed, even if he would have come down from the cross. He had performed so many other miracles, and they, of course, did not believe those miracles. So the chance of them, the idea that they would believe this additional miracle is quite ridiculous, completely unfounded. But that is often, again, the language that we as believers hear from those that do not believe in Christ or God, or even in spiritual things. If you show me this sign, if I can only see this, then I will believe. And instead they reject the many signs, and the many indications all around them, showing that God is there, showing that we are his children, and showing that he loves us. Well, as, as it continues, um, verse, uh, verse 34 Christ is now uh, reaching the end. We're in Mark chapter four, chapter 15, verse 34. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ was no doubt the keenest of all intellects. He understood the plan of salvation better than anyone could possibly understand. He knew all the ins and outs. He knew what he was doing, unpleasant as it was. He knew what was going to happen in the garden. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew what was going to happen. But for some reason in this verse, he asked this question. God, why hast thou forsaken me? Several ways to think of this. Perhaps Christ did not know that the Spirit of the Lord would be withdrawn from him for a time. 
Perhaps he was at that time feeling more lonely than he had ever felt before. And then to have that spirit be taken from him was either a surprise to him or the magnitude of pain from losing that spirit was a surprise to him. I had an incident in my family a few years ago in which I felt like, I think a little tiny bit like Heavenly Father must have felt to hear this cry. Like uh, like many expat families, we were heading home for the summer, but due to different school schedules and my work schedule, we couldn't all leave at the same time. So we arranged that my wife would go with our oldest daughter and our youngest daughter first back to the U.S., and then I would join them bringing our second and third daughters a few weeks later. Now our third daughter, Isabella, was about five at this time. And we had gone to great lengths to explain to her that mommy would be going first and that she would be staying behind with daddy and grandma and grandpa were there also from China to help take care of her. But in a few weeks that we would go and then we would be together with mommy again. And she had wrapped her mind around that. She didn't like it. She was going to miss mommy terribly, but she had wrapped her cute little mind around that and she was okay. Well, in Hong Kong, the easiest way to get to the airport is by taking what's called the Airport Express. It's a train. So we, all of us arrived at the train station. Mom and the two girls that were going, me and Isabella and Aubriana, our other daughter, who were staying behind, and Grandma and Grandpa were there as well, all to say goodbye at the train station. Now, we had agreed that I would accompany uh, my wife and the two daughters that were going to the airport, to help with luggage and then I would return. But we forgot to tell Isabella about that little part. She was ready for mommy to leave. But when that little five-year-old girl saw that daddy was leaving too, it was too much for her. And she cried out, Daddy, why are you going too? I ran to her and I grabbed her and I explained, Isabella, it's okay. I'm only going for a little bit to take mommy to the airport. And she was okay with that. And daddy returned a few hours later and she was fine. But that initial shock of daddy departing, of daddy going as well, was more than she could bear at the moment. And so, at that moment, I think I had a little tiny glimpse of how God the Father must have felt to see his only begotten son suffer and to hear him cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But Christ needed to do this himself. And so the Spirit withdrew from him temporarily so that he could complete this most essential mission on his own. And this was no doubt very difficult for him, as was obvious by, this, by his plea at this time. And, I, and it's my th belief that of all the pain that he endured during that horrible 24-hour period, it was this pain that to him was most difficult, most incomprehensible. If, you, if we turn to Doctrine and Covenants, 
section 19, verses 16 through 20, he tells us a little bit about his pain. He says, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer, even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father. And I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Wherefore, I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power and that you confess your sins lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, ye have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. So here Christ teaches us about the atonement. He teaches us about how great his suffering was. He tells us how hard it was. And then he pleads with us to repent and accept him with the promise that if we do so, we won't have to endure that suffering. And then I love verse 20 in which he tells us how bad was that suffering? Well, you got a little glimpse of it at the time that I withdrew my spirit from you. This was, of course, a revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith. And you can think about the times that the Lord's spirit had been withdrawn from him. First and foremost was the time in which he had lost the 116 pages in the agony and the torment that he had gone through as all as several months of work had been lost due, his, due to his own obedience and he therefore lost not only the manuscript but the spirit as well. And if we think about that pain, the pain of losing the companionship of Christ as manifest through the companionship of the Holy Ghost. That was the greatest pain that Christ suffered. And as we suffer that separation, hopefully it will motivate us to repent so that we don't have to go through the same separation, the same pain that Christ endured on the cross. Well, Christ did endure it on the cross. And after he had made that plea, after he had pleaded to his father, why have you forsaken me also? After he endured that spiritual death, that own spiritual separation from the father. In John verses 19, 28 through 30, it reads, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was said a full... Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon Hyssop, and put it to his lips. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. So, the spiritual death that Christ endured when the Spirit of, the, of God separated himself from him was the culmination of the atonement. At that moment, Jesus became the Christ. At that moment, he had completed 
his atonement. He had done all that was necessary to make it possible for us to become one with God again, spiritually. He had overcome spiritual death. Overcoming of physical death was still several days away with the resurrection. But all of the spiritual trials that he endured, including spiritual death while there upon the cross, he had overcome. And he then had the power to help us to overcome our own spiritual deaths. And at that point, it was finished. His purpose and mortality was complete. And he commanded his body to be separated from his spirit. And he suffered physical death. Still in John chapter 19, verse 32. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water. So they wanted to make sure that nobody died or was left hanging on the cross during the Sabbath, pious as they were. And so they had the Roman soldiers to go and break the legs of those that were still alive. The idea was that the shock from the horrible pain of having your legs shattered while you're hanging in agony on a cross would be sufficient to cause your body to go into shock and result in almost immediate death. But when they came to Christ, he was already dead. But just to make sure, rather than breaking his legs, they pierced him with a spear, and out came blood and water. Blood and water. Those two most sacred life-giving elements both present at birth, at our spiritual rebirth, and at the Savior's death. I want to read a quote from Elder Talmadge in Jesus the Christ. While as stated in the text, the yielding up of life was voluntary on the part of Jesus Christ, for he had life in himself, and no man could take his life except as he willed to allow it to be taken there was of necessity a direct physical cause of dissolution. As stated also, the crucified sometimes lived for days upon the cross, and death resulted not from the infliction of mortal wounds, but from the internal congestion, inflammations, organic disturbances, and consequent exhaustion of vital energy. Jesus, though weakened by long torture during the preceding night and early morning by the shock of the crucifixion itself, is also by intense mental agony, and particularly through spiritual suffering such as no other man has ever endured, manifested surprising vigor, both of mind and body, to the last. The strong, loud utterance immediately following which he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, when considered in connection with other recorded details, points to a physical rupture of the heart as the direct cause of death. If the soldier's spear was thrust into the left side of the Lord's body and actually penetrated the heart, the outrush of blood and water observed by John is further evidence of cardiac rupture. For it is known 
that in the rare instances of death resulting from a breaking of any part of the wall of the heart, blood accumulates within the pericardium and there undergoes a change by which the corpuscles separate as a partially clotted mass from the almost colorless watery serum. The present writer, meaning Elder Talmadge, believes that the Lord Jesus died of a broken heart. The psalmist sang in dolorous measure, according to his inspired provision of the Lord's passion, reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comfort, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The idea that Christ died from a literal breaking of his heart is very profound to me. He who was the most sensitive of hearts ever to live, who loved deeper than anyone had ever loved before, who had given more than anyone had ever given before to humanity, who had suffered more than anyone had ever suffered before for those around him. As amazing as his physical heart was, apparently it could not withstand the heartache and the heartbreak that came from being tortured, from being crucified by those whom he loved most dearly. And just as Christ died of a broken heart, so we too are commanded that we die from broken hearts. In 3 Nephi chapter 9, verses 17 through 20, we read, this is Christ again speaking to the Nephites, And as many as have received me, to them have I given to become the sons of God. And even so will I to as many as shall believe on my name. For behold, by me redemption cometh, and in me is the law of Moses fulfilled. I am the light and the life of the world. I am, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away. For I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. The parallels are hard to miss. Christ came to fulfill the law of Moses. The law of Moses required the sacrifice of animals to help the people understand the ultimate sacrifice, which their Messiah would, would eventually come and deliver to them. He came, he sacrificed, and he died from a broken heart. But with his death, the law of Moses requiring the sacrifice of animals ended. It was done. And this is portrayed <clears throat> symbolically when at the very moment that he died, the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was rent in two. It was torn to pieces because the law of Moses that had governed what happened in that temple had been fulfilled. 
The law of Moses was no longer necessary. It was no longer useful to offer the sacrifice of animals in order to show our devotion to God. Because Christ died of a broken heart to fulfill the law of Moses, it, was now, it now becomes our obligation to allow our own hearts to be broken, to give up our own hearts to God, to allow God inside of our broken hearts, to allow him to take over our broken hearts, that we give them to him and that we carry out his will in everything that we do. Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. When he came, when he bled, and when he died. And he did so, so that he can lead us to a better place. He allowed himself to be lifted up upon the cross, so that when we eventually are lifted up to stand before him, It's not a hopeless battle. We are not hopeless causes. But if we have broken our hearts in the same way that the Savior broke his, if we have given up our desires for the world, if we reject the calls that the Jews made that they have no king other than Caesar, if we give up the Caesars of the world and make Christ our king, then when we are lifted up to stand before him, he will lead us back to the Father in his infinite and eternal atonement, which makes it possible for us to become one with him, will, because he is one with the Father, allow us to enter into that same union with the Father, returning to his presence to enjoy the blessings of eternal life. That is the story of the crucifixion. That is the story of the God of the universe, the creator of the world, coming down, descending below all things, so that he can lift up us above all things, even all the way to our Father. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.